This week, we discuss regenerative farming methods, the importance of rolling joints, and how goats, yes, goats, can prevent forest fires. Coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. Jacobson. I am originally from Chicago, but currently living in Northern California. And I am the CEO and co-founder of Aster Farms, a sustainable cannabis brand in California. That very wholesome and heartwarming little intro is a track by Punch Deck, appropriately titled Organic to Synthetic. Well, at least the organic part. We will have nothing to do with that synthetic nonsense. That's for the laboratory and not our organic cannabis gardens. But yes, our guest this week is all about the organic and regenerative methods of cultivating cannabis. Julia Jacobson is the CEO of Aster Farms, which grows cannabis sustainably in Lake County, Northern California. They have a deep-rooted belief that responsible farming, live soil, and organic inputs produce the highest quality flowers, and I, for one, couldn't agree more. Originating in Chicago, Julia crisscrossed the country, working in tech for many years before deciding with her husband to leave that world for the greener pastures of the Emerald Triangle, where they grow some of the cleanest, meanest, and greenest cannabis flower in the nation. We'll get into the finer points of their cultivation methods in just a bit, but First, I wanted to find out how Julia initially came into contact with cannabis and what was it that made her go all in for the plant? My first experience with cannabis was recreational um, and it was part of my recreational social life. And then I started developing chronic migraines, which is hereditary in my family. And I was going through um, all types of treatments, uh, cocktail of pharmaceuticals, you know, everything under the sun, lidocaine shots in my forehead, you name it, acupuncture, chiropractic, everything. And not only was it not working, um, but I was having horrible side effects and it was actually making my life even worse. And so suddenly cannabis became more than just something recreational in my life. Um, It actually became 
the thing that got my life back to normal and kind of saved me. Um, I was able to get off of all the pharmaceutical drugs that I was on, which were giving me horrible side effects. Um, I no longer had to try all of these crazy different techniques, whether it's getting shots in my forehead or attempting Botox or, you know, just all, all the things that they throw at you as somebody with migraines. And so that kind of changed the way I thought about cannabis completely. Um, especially because it allows me to continue to just function and operate and be the, you know, active, um, motivated person I am, um, but without all of those side effects. So it, it really, it really changed for me when I started having migraines. So I actually avoided smoking. When I have migraines, nobody can touch me. I am in bed with a pillow over my head, all the blinds shut, lights off, and you just can't even come near me. So the thought of rolling a joint and lighting it up and going outside to do that in the sunlight, most likely, you know, all of those things just were out of the question. And so I didn't even think of using it. Um, but I ended up in the hospital over and over again because of my migraines. Um, and one time that I was in the hospital, a doctor said to me, and this was in New York, and the doctor said, you know, I can't prescribe this to you. And we may not have had this conversation, um, but I really suggest that you try cannabis for your migraines. Um, he said, I have had migraines my whole life and I have tried it and it is one of the only things that worked for me. So the next time I had a migraine, my husband uh, rolled me a joint and helped me uh, take a puff or two. And it, it really did help. You know, one of the things that it allowed was for my my mind to just shut down and for me to fall asleep for a short period of time. Um, it alleviated the pain enough for me to fall asleep. And when you fall asleep, um, oftentimes when you wake up, your migraine has basically reset. And so um, it, it was just a game changer. And from there, I started actually looking into how to use cannabis for migraines. Um, and I spoke with an actual cannabis doctor who walked me through using prophylactic, so using CBD and really light THC prophylactically, um, introducing CBG into my regimen. Um, so from there, from that ER doctor in New York saying, hey, I, I didn't say this to you, but I'm going to say this to you, um, it kind of led me down a journey of really understanding um, how, how the two work together. This was an ER doctor who had migraines himself and had seen patient after patient in the ER um, with migraines that weren't able to be controlled by any pharmaceutical or anything else out there. I have them under control. They haven't gone away, but you know, when, when they were at, when it was at its peak, I had a migraine for eight months straight. Um, every second of every single day in pain, varying, varying levels of pain, was in the hospital three times during those eight months. Um, so it was literally debilitating my life. And so the, you know, to have a light migraine once or twice a month that I know how to squash is totally fine with me. <laughs> Very manageable. I, I do smoke. I did smoke before. It was just always difficult because when you're in that moment, when you have a migraine, um, it's hard to do anything. Um, especially roll yourself a joint. So now I just attack it a little bit more prophylactically. Um, so I take CBD on a regular basis. Um, I also microdose with THC. And then I have CBG um, tablinguals, um, which are great. They're vesovascular, so they, they dilate the um, blood vessels, particularly around your 
eyes. And that's where I have a lot of my migraine pain. Um, and so a combination of those um, really helps me kind of keep them off and keep them from being really bad migraines. Um, and then it's also about managing my lifestyle. I know that if I get on a long flight, um, at the end of that flight, I'm probably going to have a migraine. So I prophylactically have a little bit more THC than I would, you know, if I was just going about, about my normal day. Um, so it's just really about understanding my body and kind of attacking it right before it happens um, to make sure that I'm not in that position where I am in so much pain I can't roll myself a joint. Like many other industry folk and cannabis enthusiasts, Julia went through the ordeal of having Big Pharma pump her full of synthetic drugs only to realize that most of them don't work on her migraines. The answer to her medical condition was not in pill form, but rather in plant form. Now, chronic pain is no joke, and migraines can certainly be debilitating, especially if they occur often. The frustrating thing for most migraine patients is that very few pharmaceuticals seem to work in the long run, so people have to keep buying synthetic pills. And if anyone has gone through the U.S. medical system, you will notice that doctors are trained to throw every possible medication at patients as they have a financial incentive to do so. Luckily, Julia has a loving husband who knows how to roll joints, which ended up being her ticket out of pharmaceutical prison. A little side note here, knowing how to roll a proper joint will open so many doors and be a lifesaver, both in terms of medicating, but also socially speaking. If you don't know how to roll a solid fatty, then by God, do yourself and your companions a massive favor and get cracking. You can thank me later. Now, I was somewhat surprised to hear that Julia was recommended cannabis by an ER doctor. Now, this was a very fortunate series of events for her, as finding an actual cannabis doctor was not easy at the time. Now, I was curious as to whether she thinks things have changed for the better in terms of finding a cannabis-friendly physician, especially now, since there are 33 states with some form of medical cannabis in the U.S. You know, I would actually say that it's still not easy, and here's the reason why. Traditional doctors, and my mom had a similar experience. She has a prescription that she's always had for years, and her doctor said, you know what, um, I'm going to actually stop prescribing that, and I'm going to send you over the dispensary. She lives in Chicago, um, so she's able to um, access cannabis. And so there are the traditional doctors who are now starting to say, hey, I'm going to point you in this direction but I don't know anything about it. I can't advise you. I can't tell you anything about CBD versus CBG versus THC, but I'm telling you, don't keep taking the drugs for me, go over there. And so then you call up these cannabis doctors and it was actually incredibly disappointing to me what I experienced, at least in California. Um, these doctors are really just there to write a prescription so that somebody can go into the dispensary and buy some weed. They're not actually trying to consult you. Um, my first experience was pretty horrible in that I was actually asking questions and the doctor didn't want to have the conversation with me. He just wanted to give me my medical license. Um, so that was actually a step backwards for me. And I think it's it's challenging and it's 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 not um, it's, it's not the right way for this industry to be going about this, especially for patients who need that medical advice. Um, so in the end, I actually collect, connected with uh, Columbia Care, which is a 
dispensary and cannabis group in California, and they are very pharmaceutical um, and very medically focused. And they have doctors who have truly crossed over from traditional to cannabis um, and are able to give that real advice. So I was able to actually talk to a doctor who knew um, the difference between CBD, CBG, THC and how to actually recommend it. So um, I wish there were more um, out there like Columbia Care. Now, nothing against bud tenders. There are some fantastic ones out there who really know their stuff and might even know a thing or two about certain medical conditions. However, Julia does bring up a valid point here in that there is a serious lack of places like Columbia Care that work very closely with patients to monitor their progress. Unfortunately, bud tenders will rarely follow up on a patient's health as it is simply not their role. For adult use or recreational purposes, a really solid bud tender is perfectly fine, even better if they are personally familiar with the product being recommended. But if you have a serious illness that requires close medical supervision, such as cancer or epilepsy, your first choice as a patient should be an actual cannabis doctor or clinic where you can count on support and regular interaction with a healthcare provider. Patients could really benefit with testing and progress monitoring, and that's something most dispensaries simply do not do. Hopefully this will start to change as the number of medical cannabis patients in the U.S. increases, but in the meantime, many patients will have to make do with whatever source of cannabis information they have. Now, getting back to Julia, I wanted to know how she went from being a regular migraine sufferer in the city to a cannabis farmer and CEO in Northern California. So I was actually living in New York for about 10, 12 years, and that's where I met my husband, who is my co-founder and president of Astor Farms. And um, at the same time that I was starting have, to have really bad migraines, I was feeling really burnt out. I was in the tech world um, and had been running a company for six years and just kind of wanted to have nothing to do with technology anymore. Um, didn't want to be in the startup world. Um, just wanted to get out of all of that and had this deep desire to literally put my hands in the dirt. Um, Sam's family has a background in agriculture and sustainable agriculture in Northern California. He grew up in um, Oakland. And so we started spending time out at the family ranch and at his uncle's olive farm and just spending more time outdoors and exploring. Um, and this was kind of at the same time where, you know, cannabis was playing a different role in my own life. Um, regulations were starting to shift in California towards recreational and towards real licensing. Um, and so kind of all the pieces came together for us to say, let's just get out of here, move to California and see if we can make this thing work. So here we are. Like many other cannabis farmers in the hills of the Emerald Triangle, Julia seemed to have had enough of the 9-to-5 life in the big city and decided to go back to the land, so to speak. All the pieces came together, the planets aligned, a dream was born, and now they have their very own cannabis company in the gorgeous Northern California hills. Unfortunately, it wasn't exactly a storybook ending for Astor Farms, as they, like many others in the area, fell victim to a natural disaster. But even in this case, they managed to make the most of an awful situation. Our farm actually burned down in 2018 um, in the Mendocino Complex fire, which was the largest wildfire in all of California history to date. And um, during the fire, we were packing up, um, evacuating. We, we were fortunate enough to have time to evacuate from the property. And uh, one of the farm animals, Harry, 
um, was the only cat that we could not round up and evacuate with. So we unfortunately had to leave Harry behind. Um, and in the aftermath, the entire community really came together and helped us rebuild. It was the 1st of August. And so we had plants that had 600 plants had been in the ground for a month and a half already. Um, and only 13 survived. Our director of cultivation's house burned down. Um, everything was destroyed. And so the community really rallied together for us and people came out and helped put up tracking cams to find Harry. Uh, a nursery in Salinas donated us 500 plants. Um, our distributor drove all day and all night long to get those plants up to us and spent the night with headlamps in the dark unloading 500 teens. Um, so everybody really just rallied around and, and was there for us. And we couldn't have gotten back up on our feet without the community. So we wanted to give back. And so we created a product called Harry's Harvest, um, dedicated to Harry the cat that we lost, that is able to give back to organizations and to causes that we care about. Um, so when we launched Harry's Harvest, we were supporting the local volunteer firefighters in Mendocino, um, Hopland specifically, um, and in Lake County. Um, you know, they're the first people who are running to an emergency and they're running away from their houses while their houses are burning down to save your own. So um, we really felt it was important to support them. And we are going to be bringing Harry's Harvest into other areas going forward. Um, in the future, we're going to be focusing on social justice, um, equity, um, expungement, other causes that are close to cannabis, and also working with our dispensaries and the communities that they're in um, to support the organizations that matter to them. Heartbreaking as it is, Harry's situation can be seen as a symbol of a community coming together in the face of tragedy. The Mendocino Complex fire was the largest recorded fire complex in California history, consisting of two wildfires, the River Fire and Ranch Fire, which burned in Mendocino, Lake, Calusa, and Glen Counties, with the Ranch Fire being California's single largest recorded wildfire. In total, the fire destroyed 280 structures while damaging 37 more. It caused at least $267 million in damages, including $56 million in insured property damage and $201 million in fire suppression costs. Julie explains how the fires affected the cannabis industry, specifically cultivation in the Emerald Triangle. You know, every year it's fire season. Um, fire season is just beginning now as all the, the grass is drying up and it'll extend all the way through October. Um, the winds really pick up towards September and October, which makes it particularly dangerous. So there's not a year that goes by where cannabis farms are not affected by the fires. Um, and, you know, we do see shortages there. There's already not enough licensed cultivation of cannabis in California to supply the demand um, in the legal market alone. And so anything that disrupts that supply um, is definitely going to have an effect on the market. Um, so we've definitely seen that. You know, the other difficult part is that cannabis, particularly outdoor cannabis, unlike a vineyard growing grapes for wine, we can't get insurance on product loss um, for natural disasters like fires. Um, so when we lose 600 plants, we have lost, you know, what, whatever that amounts to uh, financially. It's just gone. Um, so I think that's that's one of the biggest um, challenges with being a cannabis company and dealing with some of these things. 
So even in a quote-unquote legal market, the cannabis industry is still majorly handicapped thanks to federal prohibition. As Julia mentions, insurance doesn't cover cannabis crops as they are still a big no-no on the federal level. So cannabis farmers are left to fend for themselves, while vintners can easily apply for insurance and request help from the federal government. Seems a little unfair and cruel, especially considering the fact that much of the cannabis crops are destined for patients. Julia also mentions that the legal market has taken a large financial hit as a result of the fires. However, the figures tend to overlook the underground or legacy market, which is massive and dwarfs the legal one. Yet, it is impossible to obtain any figures due to its legal status. So who knows how many farmers have been put out of business and how many patients will not get their medicine that they could only get from legacy growers. Sadly, even if you have nothing but the best intentions and follow all the rules and do everything by the book, when push comes to shove as a cannabis farmer, you're still on your own as far as help from the government is concerned. So what are farmers going to do? You know, um, I think that in general, cannabis companies are taking it into their own hands and their own properties. Um, The interesting thing is cannabis companies that are growing outdoors are not contributing to climate change. If anything, they're actually sequestering carbon into the soil. Um, And yet those are the the cannabis companies and cultivation sites that burn in these wildfires, not the indoor facilities in warehouse districts um, downtown. So uh, which are the ones that are contributing to one percent of all electrical use in the United States, um, which is an incredibly large carbon footprint. So it's pretty ironic that the side of the industry that is environmentally um, safe and sound and proactive um, is the one that actually gets harmed by the impacts of um, what others are doing. Um, so, you know, at least for ourselves, uh, there are some other companies um, that are outdoor grows um, in California and, and outdoor brands who are definitely pushing forward the message of how important it is to be sustainable, um, you know, lower your your energy use. And really, um, this crop is is grown best with just natural sunlight. And so encouraging people to do regenerative agriculture um, and and farm in the most uh, sustainable way possible. So that's one thing that we are doing along with other um, outdoor cannabis brands. Um, Beyond that, it's really it's really about protecting yourself. Um, You know, it's complicated as a cannabis company. It's not like owning another CPG product where you have a warehouse filled with it. If the fire's coming, you can't just load up your car um, and drive it somewhere. You know, we're in track and trace. You cannot move a single bud of cannabis without a shipping manifest going through the regulatory agencies. Um, so, you know, there are many unique challenges to being a cannabis company um, that we're kind of all left to our own um, defenses to figure out how how we protect ourselves. Um, on our own farm, we've added a water tank just for um, just for the fire department. Um, so it has a fire hose um, hooked up to it, and it is just full and ready at all times, um, only for fire emergencies. We've also created defensible space around our site, um, you know, which is not ideal in terms of the environmental impact that we, um, you know, we really care about and try to maintain. Um, but, you know, sometimes you need to have a little bit of a gravel moat to keep yourself safe. And so it, it is what it is. Um, so I think everybody's really taking taking it into their own hands to protect themselves. 
It's no wonder so many growers in the Emerald Triangle are resisting becoming licensed producers due to all of the regulatory hurdles and other obstacles legislators have enacted. There's still many financial barriers to entry, taxes are high, regulations are strict, and in case you do experience a natural disaster, you're left in the lurch. And as Julia says, even if you take the environmentally sustainable path, you're still getting the cold shoulder from the feds. So the DIY approach is the only real recourse many companies have. However, like with any difficult situation, there is a bit of a silver lining. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the really adorable things that has come out of this is that uh, goats are actually being used. Goats eat wild brush and vegetation. They'll eat like brambles, things that other um, animals like that won't necessarily eat. So even in Oakland, you'll see these large herds of goats that are literally contracted to come out and they put them on the hillsides and the hills in Oakland. And these goats eat up all the vegetation because at a certain point, using a lawnmower can actually start. It can spark and it can start a wildfire. So at a certain point in the season, um, even the city is switching from machinery to goats. So that's a pretty, pretty nice little silver lining that you get to see a bunch of goats running around. Goats for the win. Thank you, Goat. Please send my regards to Bob and Ed. Yet another reason to love Oakland. So it looks like traditional pre-industrial methods are becoming popular again, even in urban areas such as the San Francisco Bay Area. But the -the back-to-the-land approach isn't exactly new to California. The cannabis industry was founded by such people back in the 1970s, when many city dwellers migrated from urban areas where they'd had enough of the hustle and bustle of big city life. With that also came traditional farming practices and an affinity for all things organic. But it hasn't stopped there. Julia goes into the finer points of what it means to practice regenerative farming. So regenerative farming is really about living soil um, and making sure that you have biodiversity in your crops um, and that the soil is actually, the topsoil is actually being maintained Um, there's no runoff. So um, an example of this is using cover crop. Um, So when you're not planting whatever you're you're growing, whether it's cannabis or corn, um, instead of leaving the field bare, you actually plant crops like peas, daikon, mustard seed um, that have a lot of nutrients. They put nitrogen back into the soil. They have really deep roots. Um, They just help create really beautiful living soil. Um, So cover crop is an example, uh, one aspect of regenerative agriculture. Um, It's really just about not stripping the earth literally of its um, nutrients If you look at a lot of the monocropping that happens in our culture, so if you look at, if you drive down Highway 5 in California, um, all the almond orchards and the orange orchards and, you know, all of this big ag, um, and what you see is just brown dirt. um, And that dirt has been tilled, which is basically like putting soil through a blender. Um, And when you put soil through a blender, you're killing the earthworms, you're killing all the microorganisms um, that are keeping that soil healthy and alive. And you are loosening the topsoil in a way that allows for runoff into our waterways. Um, And that brings pesticides. It brings, you know, all the nasty things that that, um, a lot of big ag um, operators are using. 
So uh, regenerative farming is is kind of like if you just think about if you walked out into a forest and there are some berries growing over there and, you know, some mustard seed growing over here. You want biodiversity. You want the ground to be covered in green um, and you want to be composting and putting those nutrients right back into the soil at all times. So um, that's really what we focus on. We feed our soil and our soil feeds our cannabis. So, for example, when we plant our cover crop, when we put in our peas and our daikon and our mustard seeds, um, we're not actually harvesting those crops. Um, we are immediately um, disking them right into the soil. So they are they are going right back into the soil to create um, nutrients. So the idea here is to maintain a sort of closed-loop system of nutrients so as not to strip the earth of anything and keep things local, unlike monocropping, which almost sterilizes and infertilizes the soil, and tilling heavily contributes to that. Nature already seems to have figured it out, so that plants and animals have everything that they need through biodiversity. But by disrupting that, you are also disrupting the food chain all the way from microbes in the ground to the animals that eat the plants, as well as their predators. As Julia noted, soil feeds cannabis, and cannabis feeds multiple other creatures, including humans. So you really are what you eat, and, by extension, what you smoke. But in addition to organic and regenerative farming, there's also another concept that's popped up recently called Clean Green. Julia explains what that means. So Aster Farms is Clean Green certified as well. Um, So basically, organic certification is actually a federal certification. And because cannabis is considered illegal on a federal level, we are not able to get any kinds of certifications on a federal level. So the USDA cannot come and even assess if our cannabis farm is organic or not. They cannot give us that label, even if we are. So within the cannabis industry, a few organizations have emerged to do that certification and Clean Green is one of them. So Clean Green comes out to your farm. Um, they do t- soil testing. They um, on, talk to you about all of your agricultural practices. They monitor you um, and you have to reapply every year, send them more information. Um, so they they are the organic certification organization that many people, many cannabis companies use in California. Um, the tricky part is consumers only know the word organic. We as cannabis companies, we legally cannot use the word organic in any of our marketing. And so it's been tricky to have these certifications that are kind of tiptoeing around that language. Um, it, re- it makes us actually have to educate our consumers on, OK, this is what clean green means. It just means we're organic. So, you know, it's it's. We're, we're thankful and happy that there is an organization that is able to give us certifications like that. Um, we just can't wait for the day where the word organic is actually included in that. And we don't have to explain to our consumers what this means. The USDA is not able to actually come in and do the, the inspection. So this is an organization that is doing it um, for us, basically. So, yeah, it's in, in terms of being stricter, it's only on the actual testing that the cannabis industry has stricter um, limits on things like pesticides and whatnot. When it comes to clean green certification, it's it's a stamp of approval saying we are as organic as the organic certification is. So essentially, clean green is the same as organic, but with even stricter standards. For the cannabis industry, this is actually a good thing as it results in top quality medicine for patients. 
It really just boils down to playing with semantics to avoid legal issues, kind of like saying sparkling white wine versus champagne. But the similarities between cannabis and grapes don't end there. Will we also see an appellation program for cannabis like we do for wine? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, this is a tangent from that slightly, but the appellation program that's being created in cannabis right now, I think is going to be a great way to support this and start to educate consumers. Um, It's more based on watershed um, than total climate. But I think that um, cannabis is absolutely affected um, by the climate, by the soil, by everything that it's in in its environment. Um, If you look at Lake County versus coastal Humboldt or coastal Mendocino, there are very unique traits to the cannabis in those different areas. Um, Where we are in Lake County, it's higher and drier. Um, which means we have a longer season. It means our bud density um, is a lot stronger. Um, And, and, you know, we definitely see um, different, different features in the cannabinoid profiles and in our terpenes specifically um, that we are getting and farms in Lake County are getting versus other areas. Um, So we, we definitely believe in that. Um, The interesting thing though is it only it is only relevant if you are literally growing in ground <clears throat> in native soil. And a lot of cannabis, even outdoor cannabis, is actually grown in pots above soil with soil that has been imported from, you know, God knows where. So I think, you know, you have to look very closely if someone is claiming um, terroir that, you know, you really understand the practices and how they're growing um, because, you know, I, I think some people are trying to claim things uh, to boost to boost their sales, make their product look a little bit nicer. But if you dig down deeper, uh, some people are really doing it and some people are not. So cannabis, um, at least in California, is held to incredibly high pesticide regulations. Um, we are held to standards, parts per billion standards and testing that are significantly stricter than organic produce. Um, An example of this is at the beginning, right when testing was rolling out, a lot of the edibles companies were trying to figure out um, get passing tests, literally passing the test was really complicated at first. Um, And part of it was figuring out what ingredients are we using that keep showing up with some kind of chemical in them. Um, And there was one edible company that told a story about how in the end it was their organic sugar. The organic sugar passed all FDA standards, all USDA standards of organic, but it did not pass cannabis testing. So if you think about how much agriculture there is in California, a lot of the soil in California, even if pesticides weren't used on that actual site, have drift, have some some amount of chemicals in them or have some amount of lead or other um, uh, other metals from the old irrigation systems. Um, So there are areas, if you look at, you know, the Salinas area where there used to be a lot of uh, flower, like carnation, like flower, those kinds of flower uh, greenhouses. A lot of those greenhouses were flipped right into cannabis greenhouses and they're seeing issues with the water. Um, In other areas, they're having issues with soil. We know a bunch of organic sustainable farmers whose property, the soil that they've been growing in for years, once cannabis testing became a thing, wasn't wasn't 
they weren't testing, um, weren't passing tests. So they actually had to start growing in pots, even though that's not who they are as cannabis farmers. Um, so I, that that is definitely an aspect that affects um, how people are able to grow. It's quite a complicated situation in California, especially if your aim is to operate within the law, but also in accordance with Mother Nature. But as far as Appalachian is concerned, it's the native soil that plays the deciding role here. Cultivating within the administrative boundaries of a certain area is not enough, as it's the soil, the microclimate, the whole ecosystem, etc., of a specific region that will ultimately determine the features of a given crop. If things continue the way they are for people like Julia and Aster Farms, however, you can expect the demand for California-grown cannabis to skyrocket, and not just in California. Now, with all of Julia's experience in the cannabis space in mind, I wanted to get her perspective on cannabis stigma over the years. Yeah, I definitely felt the stigma. Um, it definitely affected the way that I talked about my cannabis use, or I guess I should say didn't talk about my cannabis use. Um, you know, even in that interaction with the ER doctor, I wasn't readily admitting that I was a recreational user in that conversation. Um, so, you know, I have definitely, it has definitely affected me um, in many ways. Um, I think, you know, owning this company, running this company has been the catalyst to allow me to open up and talk about it and given me a place that feels um, safe outside of that stigma um, to kind of bring to light my own experiences with cannabis. So um, that has certainly been helpful, but there's a lot more to do. You know, people, people feel uncomfortable um, and particularly women going into dispensaries. Um, consumers are not armed with all the knowledge that they need to be able to walk in and have a confident, um, really pleasant experience. And so I think, you know, education is one of the most important things that we can do um, as leaders in this space and as a brand in the space is give that education and knowledge to our consumers um, so that they can feel confident in their cannabis consumption and their cannabis, cannabis experiences. And I think that confidence is step one um, to kind of overcoming that stigma. Well, as a wise man once said, confidence is contagious but so is lack of confidence. Believe that you have it, and you will have it. So, any advice for up-and-coming gondrepreneurs? I think to never say never. <laughs> I was living in New York and said I would never leave. Um, I was living in the city and said I'd never live in the country. I, you know, I was in corporate and said I'd never not be in corporate. I, I was in tech and thought that was the rest of my life. And so I think uh, just reminding yourself that you never know and just to let life take you on the journey. Well, that may sound like a cliche, but it's oh so true. So where can we contact Julia? Best way is to DM us on Instagram. We are at Aster Farms or to email us at info at asterfarms.com. And now time to bid Julia adieu. Julia Jacobson of Esther Farms. This is a great talk. Thank you for your insight on uh, responsible organic uh, farming. Uh, I think it's important to showcase the where and the how of cannabis as medicine, and uh, you're certainly doing a great job at that. All the best with uh, Aster Farms and uh, the rebuilding of Mendocino. The world needs more people and places like that. So uh, yeah, I hope to cross paths with you again once I make it back to uh, Northern California. Hopefully that'll be soon. 
Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And we would love to have you at our farm when you come out here one day. You just heard episode 43 of the Critical Grass podcast. Only a few more to go before we hit quinquagenarian status. A big thank you once again to Julia Jacobson for the great chat. If you're in California, don't forget to check out Astro Farms and their sustainable sun-grown product line. If you like the show, by all means, feel free to share with others with whatever methods the kids are using these days. You won't regret it. You can also support the show by donating via PayPal directly on the Critical Grass website or by becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com criticalgrass. We'll be taking a very short break, but we'll be back soon with even more exciting ganja guests, so stay tuned. My name, once again, is Bogdan. Keep it sustainable. Harry lives! <laughs>